Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Almost 50 years ago, in July 1969, the US astronauts Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong went to the moon on Apollo 11 and then all safely came back to Earth again. It was a round trip of more than 760,000 kilometres and it was all achieved using computers and navigational technology we'd laugh at today. No wonder it's still hailed as one of the greatest achievements in human history. Now a new BBC series called 13 Minutes to the Moon reconsiders the moon landing. And using gripping old audio and interviews with astronauts, scientists, engineers and mission control staff, it shows how close Apollo 11 came to failure. I'll speak to the show's host, Kevin Fong, in just a moment. He wanted to be an astronaut, he worked for NASA, and he says his interest in space inspired him to follow a career in science and medicine. First, though... Here's some of episode one. Eagle Houston, your lineman is going, he acts. On my mark, 3.30 till ignition. That's the voice of one of the characters you'll come to know. Charlie Duke sitting in mission control, radioing Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, reassuring them that they're OK to proceed. At this point in the mission, the crew of Apollo 11 had been in space for just over four days. Two hours earlier, their spacecraft had divided into two separate modules. One, with Michael Collins on board, remained in orbit, while the other, the landing craft, was crewed by Armstrong and Aldrin. In the clip you're about to hear, the mission control team is preparing for the most critical and dangerous stage of the mission, the final 13 minutes before landing. And now, the moment of truth. The 13 minutes begin. 50,000 feet above the moon, Armstrong and Aldrin ignite their engine. That slows Eagle, their spacecraft, down, allowing the moon's gravity to capture it, marking the start of their descent. Eagle's engine is now armed and ready to fire. The voices you can hear belong to Aldrin and the mission control team. The engine is now firing at 10% of its maximum thrust. But almost immediately, things start to go wrong. There are serious problems communicating with mission control. Spacecraft communications are absolutely lousy. We can't communicate to them, they can't communicate to us. And almost as soon as they get over that problem, Armstrong spots another. Looking down at the lunar surface still far below, Armstrong sees that the flight is not going to plan. They're travelling faster than expected and they're going to overshoot their target landing site. And back in Houston, the flight controllers, responsible for orchestrating the mission, are getting nervous. Stephen Bales is monitoring the guidance system for the lander and he realises that something isn't right. I am in big trouble. 
because that vehicle is going toward the moon faster than it should be. It doesn't know it. If it grows by another 15 feet per second, I got to abort. Here's some 26-year-old kid, kid, sitting here at a console who could stop the lunar mission. Then, about five minutes into the descent, with 30,000 feet to go, the crew and mission control have another problem. This one with the unique computer controlling the flight, with alarm after alarm flashing up in the cabin. 12.02. We get this thing, 12.02. 12.02. I was totally in shock. That was the shocker for me. That only comes when it's really serious. There was something happening inside the computer that we did not understand. And for the first time, there is tension in the voice of the usually unshakable Neil Armstrong. My mind was, that's it, we're not going to land. Let's pause it there, with 30,000 feet to go and a lot more drama still to come. But by the end of episode 10, we'll have examined the entire final descent to the moment of touchdown. And by then, you'll have got to know the people whose voices you heard in that sequence, along with many more whose efforts made Project Apollo and the first landing on the moon possible. But to understand how the story ends, we have to go further back in time to the very beginning, to the events that gave birth to the space race and the shadow of war. In many ways, that signal sets the stage for Project Apollo. For Americans in 1957, that was the sound of fear. Signals from Sputnik, the world's first satellite orbiting the Earth. The satellite had been launched by the Soviet Union, the United States' only superpower rival. And while there was no direct military conflict between the two, their relationship was one of fierce competition in what was known as the Cold War. With the threat of nuclear conflict ever-present, the launch of Sputnik seemed to demonstrate the Soviet Union's technological superiority, and to the Americans, this was a thing of terror. Apollo flight controller Steve Bales was a schoolboy in small-town Iowa when Sputnik was launched. We were in a Cold War, worried about nuclear exchanges, we were worried about what might happen, because it easily could have happened. And then all of a sudden... There's this beeping ball going around above us that nobody can get to, nobody can stop. People can see from time to time. There were little uh, broadcasts that say, hey, go out and look at this time. You can see a little glimmer of light. People tried to do it. I never could, uh, but others did. It was, and here it was, beep, beep, beep. And then about a month later, I believe, they sent a dog into space. So not just can they send a piece of iron that can beep, and send an animal into space. And we think, are we that far behind? The sense of alarm was shared at the highest levels of the US government. Here's Robert Siemens, who joined NASA as a senior manager in its very first year, 1958. This is from an interview he recorded with the Johnson Space Center history office. Sputnik got a lot of world publicity. And whether the Soviets had planned it or not, to this day, nobody really quite knows, but, but when they found out the impact this had, and then, then they played on it, and then they would do take another step, like putting a dog in space, or they, 
Well, they went around the moon and took a picture of the backside of the moon. Mm -hmm. and, and then when they finally put a man up there, mm -hmm. when Gagarin went into orbit, all hell broke loose. That blew everybody's mind. First Sputnik, and now a man, Yuri Gagarin. This is how that mind-blowing news was reported to the world by the BBC and Moscow Radio. Half an hour ago, the Russians announced that they'd put the first man into space. An announcement broadcast from Moscow Radio in English said the world's first spaceship, Vostok... He is Airman Major Yuri Gagarin, an Air Force pilot, a citizen of the Union of the Soviet Socialist... Here's a Moscow recording of his voice speaking to Russian scientists as he went through space. Major Gagarin said that the flight was going on successfully, normal, visibility was good, and that he himself was feeling good as well. Some of episode one, we choose to go from 13 minutes to the moon from the BBC World Service. Now, the show's presenter, Kevin Fonk, wasn't even alive at the time of the moon landing in 1969, but he was fascinated by space, and of course he heard all about it and followed other Apollo missions as a child. He's now an anaesthetist, but he once applied to be an astronaut and also worked for NASA for a while. So I asked him where he'd rank the Apollo 11 moon landing on the list of our greatest human achievements. I mean, it's without doubt one of the, if not the most impressive feats of exploration in the history of our species. You, you can't say otherwise, really. No one else has done that. No human being has ever travelled faster or further. And it was really a watershed moment in history, which, which saw us come together as, as a crew of people to achieve this hugely complex task in, a, in an amazingly short period of time. So there is no question that someone once said of Neil Armstrong that, that he is one of the few figures of the 20th century who has an outside chance of being remembered in the 30th century. And I think that tells you everything. Because obviously it's seen as a huge achievement and a huge success. And I guess we've got this narrative that it's a, you know, great glory for humankind and, and everything else. But one of the interesting things I thought listening to that first episode is it was quite close to going pretty badly wrong, wasn't it? Yeah, so we all know that Armstrong and Aldrin landed on the moon and that they were the first to do so. But most people don't really appreciate just how dramatic that final 13 minutes of descent before touchdown on the surface were. And that's why we chose to focus on that 13 minutes in, in the series it is because, you know, you ask people, and they say, yeah, they landed, but they don't know that, that they had problems with their communication, that the vehicle was running long on its target landing site, uh, that the computer on board the vehicle, which they absolutely depended upon was failing or it looked like it might be failing at one point and then when he gets down to the surface of the moon uh, Armstrong's got seconds of fuel left you know they're counting down 60 seconds then 30 seconds and in Mission Control everyone listening to it including Charlie Duke who was someone we spoke to who was an Apollo astronaut who was in Mission Control talking to the crew at that time said I thought that's it um, we're not landing on the moon today we're done there's too many problems and yet they still succeeded and that is the remarkable story. What did you find in researching the, the show that surprised you the most? Because you're obviously knowledgeable about the area and you've, uh, you know, you've worked at NASA. Were there things that you were finding out that you just had no idea about before? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for us, uh, it, 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 was, <laughs> it was an epic road trip. And all told, we were in the United States oh, near four, nearly five weeks, you know, in separate uh, trips, hunting down these people who had been part of this programme. And, and yes, 
I, I, you know, I, I guess more than some, I'm familiar with the story, but there was always new stuff. And, and that was for a number of reasons. One is because partly these people we're talking to are in their eighties, often their late eighties. And for them, you get the sense it's, it, they know it's the 50th anniversary. There's this sense of last chance to see, last chance to tell. And so I think some of them were telling stories in a way that they haven't told before. And that was a great joy and a great privilege. But but also there was just, there's so much story that, that, that actually when you dig as deep as that, you start to uncover it. And for me, one of the standout moments was my understanding of one of the less known missions, that the story of which we tell uh, during the podcast series uh, is, is Apollo 7. And Apollo 7 is the first time they fly any Apollo vehicle into orbit. Uh, and yet we don't celebrate it. Like, you know, people should remember that crew the way we remember Alan Shepard or John Glenn or Yuri Gagarin, but kind of embarrassed about them because they, they, they're said to have, I guess, misbehaved a little bit during the flight. But that mission happens 21 months after three NASA astronauts are killed in the Apollo 1 fire. And so we spent an entire episode really talking about a remarkable 21-month period where they go from that fire to the, the phoenix that was Apollo 7. And actually, when you understand that the people who flew on Apollo 7 were the neighbors and friends and colleagues, close colleagues of the people who died in the fire, you kind of understand the pressure that was on them. Yeah. You kind of you know, you, 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 you come to a new understanding of that crew and what it was they did and, and actually how probably they should be remembered differently. I mean, if I wanted one thing from, from, from the series, you know, it is actually to sort of recalibrate our understanding of, of what some of these people went through and what they were. This task had never been done, but they weren't afraid of it. I know I wasn't. When we landed on the moon, the average age of the people that were working in the control center and supporting the flights, our average age was about 27, 27. And they stepped right up to it. I think that one of the really surprising things I found was that the people controlling the mission in mission control was so young. That's right. And, and, and that was one of the things that struck me the most. Uh, one of my favourite interviews was the, with a guy called Stephen Bales, and he was a flight controller. And he's like the Luke Skywalker of the whole story. He he grows up in, in Iowa in the United States, which is sort of a farming community. And he's a typical boy. He goes outside, stares at vast skies, at stars and, and dreams of space, watches Walt Disney movies about space and finds his way to the big city to to Houston, to NASA, works almost as a T-boy. He, he's given tours to, to VIPs through mission control when he starts there, but works his way up through the ranks. And finally, someone spots him for what he is, you know, this utterly dependable, hugely capable man who they, at the age of 26, they're happy to stick behind the desk to play one of the most critical roles of the descent phase of, of Apollo 11. So Stephen Bales, at 26 years old, like all of his other colleagues there in their 20s, finds himself behind the desk in the 13 minutes of descent to the moon on the end of one of the most critical decisions of the whole program. And, and so that story is told over and over again through Apollo, but he is, for me, the best example. And, you know, even today, when we spoke to him at his house, 50 years later, he still can't believe he was in that seat, that he had that responsibility. He has this great line in, in the series where he says, yeah, here's some 26-year-old kid, 26-year-old <laughs> kid who can start the space mission. And, and, you know, and even now he can't quite believe he was there, but, but he made that call. He saved the mission. 
One of the things as well that I thought just really elevated and it's so powerful is is all the audio, you know, the audio between Mission Control and the astronauts. No level. 60. 60 seconds. We've had shut down. We copy you down, Eagle. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. How did you get hold of all that? Is that out in the public domain or did NASA have to give that to you? Or how, how did that come about? So on the one hand, NASA have made publicly available a lot of this archive material and, and you know, we're very grateful to them for doing that. But it's not just laid up there nicely in a nicely curated fashion. Uh, my my brilliant, brilliant and, and tirelessly uh, working uh, producer Andrew Luck Baker got deep into that archive and fished out. You know, we would talk about the stories, we would talk about the things that we wanted to understand. We would go in, we would delve hard into it, and we would discover these little gems. You know, because they're, they're it's it's like a lucky dip of clips. A lot of this stuff, it, you know, it's 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 not arranged in any any sensible fashion. So so it, it's a huge body of work for for the team to have gone in and got that stuff. So yes, the stuff is kind of available, but but you have to go hunting for it. And then as the series goes on, what we're trying to do is to give the listener a much better understanding for the stuff that they're hearing in those audio loops. So when you hear Apollo audio, it's unmistakable. It can't be anything else. You know the instant it dials up on the speaker, you know what it is. You know it's astronauts talking to mission control. It couldn't be anything else. And we're familiar with it, but we don't really understand it. And so so what we wanted to do in the process of making this series was explode that stuff, that detail, so that when you listen to it again, you have a better understanding of what it is you're hearing and why there's that urgency and why you know every word, every phrase, every silence tells a story and, and we wanted to tell the stories. So that's what 13 Minutes to the Moon is all about. Kevin Fong, the host of 13 Minutes to the Moon from the BBC World Service, and that's produced by Andrew Luck Baker. Just one episode out so far, but the series is 12 episodes long. A new one comes out each Monday, and the final episode's going to coincide with the actual 50th anniversary of the moon landing on the 20th of July. And you can find details of where you can listen to more and subscribe if you go to rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Thanks for listening to the podcast hour from RNZ. If you're finding it helpful to find new stuff to listen to, then please do consider rating or reviewing us with as many stars as you can manage wherever you get your podcasts from and tell your friends and family about us too. And if you're writing a review, then do let us know what you like about the show or how it could be improved. So if you'd like to hear longer clips, more interviews with the people making the shows that we feature... And if four shows is about the right number to highlight each week, that kind of stuff, it would be really helpful to know. Thanks a lot. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.